Appreciate the presence of everyone this evening. Uh, we had a good Thanksgiving holiday. Jerry and I did, and uh, Katie and Jake joined us in Atlanta at my sister's house. Uh, on uh, Well, we went on Wednesday. We came back. Well, we just got back this afternoon, in fact. And uh, we uh, had about 30 people or so, maybe a little bit more than that, all together, just about all family members. And uh, just a good opportunity, and I appreciate the opportunity to be away. Brother Simon filling in for me in uh, the Bible class, and Brother Kevin uh, this, uh, this morning in uh, the sermon. And I had Landon on standby. I mean, he, he was ready to go. I had told him uh, have something in his hip pocket just in case. Our plan was to come back this afternoon, but I'm always uh, concerned about Thanksgiving Day traffic, or not Thanksgiving Day, but weekend traffic, people on their way home, and getting caught in traffic. That did happen to us one time, so I'd like to have somebody ready, and Landon was uh, willing to do that. But uh, we got back in time, so I thought I'd just uh, do it myself, and so I uh, just appreciate his willingness to do that. But I do hope you had a good holiday. It's uh, good for us and just kind of refreshing and energizing for us uh, to be with family, people that we don't get to see very often, maybe once a year or so. And uh, that was good for us, and we appreciate that opportunity. It's, it's uh, a little different for us than, than some. Some people have all their family close by or, or pretty close by, and you can see them all the time and get together. And uh, Cherry and I are together, of course, Katie and Jake are here, but a lot of our family live, uh, they live pretty, pretty far away. We don't get to see them very often, and it's good to be able to, to do that. So I appreciate that opportunity. What you think about, just for a few minutes, a little, kind of a, a little vignette, a little, little story. Uh, imagine a, a young boy, maybe in the old days, walks down to the creek, and he's got his fishing pole with him, and uh, he puts his line out into the water, and he catches a fish, pretty nice fish, too. And he walks home. He's got that fish on a, on a stringer, you know, or maybe he's just carrying it in his hand. He's going to take it home. They're going to cook it for supper. And so as he's walking home, a man stops him and says, Hey, young man, that, that's, a, that's an awfully nice-looking fish you got there. How'd you catch it? He said, well, I caught him down at the creek. I hooked him, and I brought him in. Well, that's, that's great. That's a nice-looking fish. Congratulations. Little boy walks a little bit, bit further. Another man stops him and says, young man, that, that's an awfully fine-looking fish you got there. Did you catch that? Yes, sir. How would you catch it? Well, I caught it with my cane pole. And so the little boy walks a little bit further, and another man stops him and says, uh, that's a nice-looking fish you got there. Did you catch that? Yes, sir, sure did. How'd you catch it? Had a nice, big, fat, juicy worm, and I caught him with that. How, how did the little boy catch the fish? Well, really to understand completely how he caught the fish, or to understand, how to have a good, full understanding, we have to put all of that information together. What he now, what he told each man was true, but to get the full picture, we have to put it all together, all of those bits of information. And, and what, what would you come out with? This little boy went down to the creek, had his cane pole and his line, had a hook on the end of his line, got that nice, fat, juicy worm that he dug up from the garden and put that on his hook, let that out into the water. The fish bit it. He set that hook and pulled him in. 
And you have to get, to get the whole picture, you have to take all the information together, don't you? That's a lesson in Bible study. And I'll show you a Bible example of what we've done. When we're studying a Bible subject, we have to take all the information that we have in the Bible. We need to gather all that information and put it together in a coherent whole in order to understand all the truth of God's will, what God has to say on that subject. Well, if you look at uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's crucified, we read an account of a disciple of Jesus drawing his sword and striking the servant of the high priest. You remember that, you remember that story? Uh, the, the disciple of the Lord takes his sword, swings it at the servant of the high priest, and strikes him. Well, this is what Matthew has to say about that. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Matthew doesn't give us any more information than that. Mark tells us just about the same thing. Mark 14, verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the slave of the high priest, and cut off his ear. You kind of picture that in your mind, how that might have happened. Well, all four gospel accounts give us uh, an account of this. And so Luke says in Luke 22, 50 through 51, And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So Luke gives us a little bit more information, doesn't he? Now, he doesn't contradict Matthew and Mark. doesn't say something different from them from that point of view, but just something additional, more than they say. And then John tells us this, John 18, verse 10, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Now, to get the whole picture, you have to take all of this information, information from all four accounts, and put it together, and then we have a full account, the, the whole account of what happened on this occasion. Matthew and Mark simply say, one of those who were with Jesus struck the slave of the high priest. Luke says, the man cut off the slave's right ear. Now, Matthew and Mark say, cut off his ear, but Luke tells us it's his right ear. And Luke also tells us that Jesus healed the man. And then John calls the name of the people involved, Simon, Peter, and, and Malchus. And so to get the entire story, it would be something like this. Simon, Peter, one of those with Jesus, struck Malchus, the servant of the high priest, with his sword and cut off his right ear. Jesus told Peter to put his sword away. Then Jesus touched Malchus' ear and healed him. And, and so you can, that's not... Now, that's not a difficult lesson to learn. I mean, it's, just not, it's not really hard to understand. Take all the Bible information, put it together, and that's how you get a complete picture. Now, that's what we've been trying to do on Sunday nights. We've been trying to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? Remember, we raised that question from Acts chapter 16, the conversion of the Philippian jailer, when the earthquake took place, uh, loosening the chains of the prisoners, Paul and Silas among them. The, 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 the jailer rushes in 
And he asks that question, what must I do to be saved? And Peter gives him an answer, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. But we also noted they spoke the word of the Lord to, to, to the jailer and to his family. So there must have been more information involved. And so in order to answer this question, in order to get a full Bible answer, we need to take all the information on that question. What must I do to be saved? And then we'll have a full answer. Now it would be a mistake to get some of the information and stop short of getting all the information. We have an incomplete answer. We might make a serious mistake by doing that. And so we want to gather together all the Bible information on that subject before we draw a conclusion. So far we've learned that the gospel is God's power to save. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so the gospel is God's power to salvation to everyone who believes. And so that tells us a couple of things in answer to the question, How, what must I do to be saved? Well, the gospel is God's power to save. Now there's, there's another passage that I'd like to turn to in connection with that. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so, and anyway, I might also add verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so it's the message that's preached. It's the word of the cross. It's the gospel that saves people. But in order to believe the gospel, so you notice that in Romans chapter 1, to everyone who believes, in order to believe the gospel, what must take place? We have to hear the gospel. See, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And so that's Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Remember we talked about that, I think, last Sunday night. Looked at all these cases of conversion. In each case, the one converted first heard the gospel and then they believed the gospel. We talked about how important it is for us to share the gospel and tell others about the gospel because if they're going to be saved, they have to hear it first. So hear the gospel. And then we must believe as well. Believe the gospel, the word of the cross. We're believing in Christ as our Savior, the crucified one who made atonement for our sins on the cross. And so we're putting our faith and our confidence in Him and, and not in ourselves. But that's not all that the Bible says in answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? And we can stop right there, but we'd be making a serious mistake if we did. Because we'd be leaving out important information from the text that is given in answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? And, and so once again, we notice in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer is told to believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. So they did more than just tell him to believe on the Lord. They told him to do other things as well. And so... We want to think about what else the Scriptures have to say in answer to this question. So here's our principle. In order to understand fully the teaching of Scripture on any subject, we must compile all the Bible teaches on that subject.
before we draw definite conclusions. Now, sometimes that takes a long time. <laughs> it takes a lot of study. And sometimes maybe a, life, a lifetime of study. But that's, that's what we need to do and set ourselves to doing. I want to talk tonight about the necessity of repentance. And we take this as our title, Repentance Leading to Salvation, from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. For the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So repentance, Bible repentance, leads to salvation. What must I do to be saved? Well, here's something that leads to salvation. That's what the Bible says. Repentance leads to salvation. We have, have hear the gospel, put our faith in him. Remember we talked about how hearing in the Bible implies understanding and do, doing and obedience and put our faith. It's a living and active, active, active faith. But we also repent unto salvation. And so let's just see what the Bible has to say about repentance, true repentance. Well, repentance, first of all, is an essential component of the gospel. Jesus taught repentance. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, Jesus, is a summary of his teaching, went about saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, that's just a summary that captures the, the gist, the, the, the core of Jesus' teaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Luke chapter 5 and verse 32, it says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that's an important element in that passage. I've, I've come not to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. But what am I going to do with those sinners? I'm going to try to persuade them to repent. And so I've come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus tells some stories that illustrate repentance and, and what it is, what's required and involved in repentance. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 24. Uh, let me turn the page so I get to the right place. Verse 28, rather. Well, what do you think, Jesus says? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. Man has two sons. The first one, go work today in the vineyard. But he said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Now, regret is a synonym for repent in that passage. You could just as easily say, later he repented it and went. But he regretted having told his father, I will not do what you've asked me to do. He, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and he said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir, but he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. And so the idea is they're willing to repent and you're not. So that, that's an illustration of what repentance is. Here's the command of God. I'm not going to do it, but we change our mind and we act. We, we do it. And Jesus tells another story that illustrates well uh, repentance in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And here's a passage. Now, I don't know that the word repent is in the passage, but it sure illustrates what repentance is. And remember the story. The prodigal son comes to the father. It's not prodigal yet. He comes to the father and asks for that share of the inheritance that's going to come to him. The father gives it to him. And 
He goes, he lives home, and spends his living in riotous living, spends that sum in riotous living. He's an immoral man. Later, his brother accuses him of spending it with the prostitutes, and very well may have been. But verse 17, he came to his senses and said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? You remember his situation? He didn't have enough food to even feed himself. And so he decides to go back to his father and try to just work for his father as a servant. Even the servants of my father have, have enough to eat. And so that's a good illustration of what repentance is. He left home, a rebellious son, uh, didn't care what his father's will was, but later he comes to himself, comes to his senses, and returns to the Father. Jesus, Jesus teaches us about repentance. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus warns those who don't repent, uh, or is critical of those who don't repent. Matthew 11, verses 20 and 21 he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So woe to you! You won't repent. And so he warns those. He's critical of those who are unwilling to repent. In fact, in Luke chapter 13 and verse 1, uh, Jesus, uh, actually we'll skip down to verse 3. Jesus addresses some who are on that occasion. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so you see, G Jesus' teaching revolves around repentance. It's an, it's an essential component of the gospel. But that's not all. Preaching repentance was part of the apostles' commission. Look at Luke chapter 24. We're familiar with maybe Matthew's account of the Great Commission, Mark's account of the Great Commission. But look at Luke's account of the Great Commission. He says in verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you're a witness of these things. Repentance, repentance, and remission of sins will be preached to every nation. And exact, of course, that's exactly what they do in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Peter stands up with the eleven and he tells them to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, again, Peter preaches, repent and return or be converted so that your sins might be wiped away. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, there in the city of Athens, he's uh, gotten... He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And, and so, repentance is an essential component of preaching the gospel. We're not going to preach the whole gospel if we don't preach repentance. And we could continue. Look at Romans chapter 2. And so, in the epistles as well, we find encouragement to repent. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You need to repent. The kindness of God is leading you to repentance. We've already looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 
7 and verse 10, where we took our title, Repentance Leading to Salvation. Now, we're going to take the time to read all of these, but I think I've counted this correctly. I could be wrong about it, but I think six times in the seven messages to the churches of Asia, six of those messages contain an exhortation to repent. I'll give you the passages. Revelation 2, verse 5. Revelation 2, 16, Revelation 2, 21 and 22, 3, verse 3, 3, 19. And then, of course, there are passages where the specific word isn't found, and we've, we've already raised that by looking at the story of the prodigal son. But there are passages where the word itself isn't found, but the idea is there. My mind went to Isaiah, since we're studying the book of Isaiah in our auditorium class. Isaiah 1, verse 16 and 17. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's a good, that's a good description of repentance, isn't it? Stop doing evil, start doing good. And so if it's an essential component of the gospel, we need to kind of understand what it is. What, what is repentance? Well, not everyone has always understood repentance, what it is. There was a time when many people understood repentance to mean doing penance. Now, now penance is a good work that someone does to atone for their sin. So in Roman Catholicism, a sinner goes into the confessional. You maybe have seen this portrayed on television or something like that. Goes into the confessional, confesses his sins to the priest. The priest grants him absolution, as if he could do that, and uh, will pronounce his sins forgiven based on certain things, the contrition of uh, one confessing his sin, but it also give him some work to do. Say, this many of this kind of prayer, this many of this kind of prayer. Go out and do these good works, these charitable deeds. That's, that's your penance. And in doing your penance, doing these good works, you will atone for your sin and everything will be right with God. And so there was a time when people thought repentance meant to do penance. Bible repentance doesn't mean that at all. The Greek word for repentance found in the New Testament is metanoia. That's a compound word. It's made up of two words, a preposition and then a noun. And it means to change one's mind, or maybe better, to be converted. Now, not just to change your mind, but really involves changing our behavior, changing the way we think. It's a decision to change entirely, both in our thinking and in our doing. And so it's, it's an entire change in, in ourselves. And so maybe be converted is a good way to describe it. It's about being sorrowful for sin and changing one's life. It's, it's not done to atone for sin. We, we can't atone for our own sin. Only Christ can do that to bring our lives into harmony with God's will. That, that's why we repent, to bring our lives into harmony with God's will. We might notice some of the terms, I don't think I've got a slide on this, but notice some of the terms used by the New Testament to describe the change that takes place when a person comes to God. He is born again. Well, if anything describes a complete change, I suppose it would be that, wouldn't it? He is born again. Remember we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, 
through the living and enduring Word of God. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive in Christ. And so you were dead, but you've been made alive. You've been raised from the dead, so to speak, in spiritual terms. You were dead spiritually, but now through Christ you're made alive. That's a complete change, isn't it? That's a total transformation made alive. In the story of the prodigal son, and after the prodigal son comes home, and remember the older brother begins to complain about, about the, the son that's come home and how the father is making a big celebration for him and he kind of resents that. And the father says that my son who is dead has come alive again. And so that's, that's repentance. That's, that's conversion. Dead in sin, but now we've been made alive. John 5, verse 24, we've passed from death to life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Brand new creature, new kind of creature. Again, total transformation. Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10, talk about putting the, off the old man and putting on the new man. Get the words exactly right which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So put off the old man, put on the new man that's being renewed. In Romans 6 verses 3 through 5 talk about dying and being raised when we're baptized, dying and being buried with Christ, raised to a new life. Romans 6 verses 3 through 5. And so think about all those born again, made alive, passed from death to life, a new creature, a new man, dying and rising to a new life. Those descriptions take place, uh, describe a complete and radical change that takes place when someone truly repents. Now let's look at a few Bible examples of repentance. We looked at this already. Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22, uh, 32 the parable of the two sons. The father goes to the first son, go work today in my vineyard. I'm not going to go. Later he repented himself or regretted what he had said, and he went. And so you can see a change of attitude that produces a change of action. He repented himself or he regretted it and went. The, the second son just, well, he said he would go and he never did. The prodigal son we looked at that as well. The prodigal son uh, left his father, lived a very irresponsible life, a sinful life. And then eventually, verse 17, he came to himself. He comes to his senses. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up. I will go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Wow, what a transformation in attitude that, that is. I'm going to go to my father. I'm just going to ask to be, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. That wasn't his attitude before, was it? But it's his attitude. Now you can see that change of thinking, that change of attitude, that sort of radical transformation that takes place. That's why we say this is a good example of repentance. He got up, came to his father. While he's still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him and said, 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And they began to celebrate. In fact, now that I think about it, the, the word repentance really is in this particular passage, isn't it? Now, it might not be in the story, but if you look earlier in the chapter, Jesus tells two stories that illustrate how there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. See that, for example, in verse 7. And here's, here's one sinner, the prodigal son. What does he do? He repents. That's really what the whole story is about. All right. Saul of Tarsus is a good example of Bible repentance. We've talked about Saul of Tarsus before. Before he becomes a Christian, he's a violent aggressor, a blasphemer, a persecutor. But then his whole attitude changes. His whole way of thinking changes. His whole life changes. And he becomes an advocate for the gospel, a preacher of the gospel. You can look this up, this passage up. That's, I think, to this audience, a well-known story. Here's another good illustration of what repentance is. Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to the city of Ephesus. He preaches the gospel there. Many people believe what he's preaching, commit to it. They become Christians. It says in verse 18, many of those who had, been, who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together, began burning them in the sight of everyone. They counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a good example of repentance. They were involved in magic. They heard the gospel. They completely changed their way of thinking and their attitude. And they put that magic behind them and they begin to follow Christ. They, be, they become Christians. And the change is so complete, they take their magic books, and this always impressed me, they burn them. They don't say, have a garage sale and let's sell our magic books. They might be worth a lot to somebody out there. We can make a little money. They don't want other people practicing magic either. They just make a complete clean break with their past. That's, that's repentance, isn't it? There's a couple of Old Testament examples. The city of Nineveh comes to mind in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh. Remember, he didn't want to go at first, but... And, uh, Eventually he goes after his experience in the fish that the Lord prepared. So he finally goes to Nineveh and he's crying out against the city. And, and listen to what, what happens. This is beginning Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed in God of all things. <laughs> Jonah wasn't expecting that. He was hoping for a different result. But the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast, and he put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, sat on the ashes, and issued a proclamation. And it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink. But... Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way, from the violence which is in his hands. And so you see that change? 
call on God earnestly, turn from your wicked way. That, that's repentance. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. That's, that's a good Bible example of repentance. That's what the Lord requires of us. That's an essential component of the gospel. There's another good Bible illustration of repentance that I like to, to point to. Now, we might remember King Manasseh. Oh, he's terrible. He's a terrible king. Uh, unfaithful to God, an idolater, sacrificed his own, his own sons to the idol, made them pass through the fire, and so offered them to this false god. And it's because of his sin that God determined to destroy Judah. It, it, that, that was, the, that was the, the point of no return, really. When, when Manasseh did what he did, there, there's no going back. God is going to destroy Judah. And he mentions that on several occasions, multiple occasions at least, that because of what Manasseh did, I'm going to bring judgment, my judgment, upon, upon Judah. But look at 2 Chronicles chapter 33. In 2 Chronicles 33, we read about Manasseh, we read about, about his sin. And we're going to begin reading in, in verse 9. Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of, King of Assyria against them and captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. When he prayed to him, he, that is, God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew the Lord was God. Now, that's a good example of of penitence, isn't it? Of repentance. This man was as evil as anybody had ever been. And yet he turns to the Lord. He begs the Lord. And the Lord, the Lord blesses him. Nobody is really beyond the reach of the gospel if they'll turn to the Lord. Well, let's just, in, as we bring all this to a close, just look at these three elements of repentance. We've referred to them several times uh, throughout our, our study the first one is, is contrition, just, just being sorry for our sin. Godly sorrow produces repentance. We, we see it in King David after his sin with Bathsheba. He, 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 he simply confesses it, I, I've sinned. Now, he tries to cover it up at first, but when confronted with it, his contrition uh, comes out. You see it in the 51st Psalm as well. Now, repentance is not regretting that our sin has been exposed or that we've been caught doing something we should not. It's genuine sorrow over transgressing God's will. Now, a lot of times we might do something we shouldn't and we get caught and we get awfully sad about it. That's not repentance. It's not Bible repentance. And uh, we might do something, we might misbehave, and, and we suffer some consequences, and, and we get upset about it. But that, that's not true Bible repentance. Bible repentance is sorrow, genuine contrition, that we have transgressed God's law. Those were David's words against you, against you, 
You only have I sinned. And it's not that David had not sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah or, or anyone else, but sin is mainly against God. And, and true repentance is a recognition of that. I've sinned against God. And that produces this godly sorrow that leads to repentance. A second essential element is a change of attitude or thinking. So this is taken from the story of the prodigal son. He came to himself, or he came to his senses. And so his attitude changes, his thinking changes. Saul of Tarsus illustrates this point. The Ephesians illustrate this point. And so this change of attitude, this change of thinking, this change of looking at ourselves and looking at our responsibility before God. And then the third essential element is a change in behavior. But afterward, he regretted it and went. You know? And this is that first son and the story of the two sons. The father comes to the first son, go work in my vineyard today. And he says, well, you know, I won't. I'm not going to go. But then he regretted it. That's not the end of the story. And he went. And so there's that change of action as well. Now we'll note that a mere change in behavior is not necessarily repentance. A person might change his behavior for many reasons. He might have health, some health concerns. And so he's been leading a very ungodly and unhealthy life. And so he sees that it's an unhealthy life and so he changes. But that's, not, that's not Bible repentance if that's his motivating factor. A person might change because he's afraid of getting caught and facing the consequences. You know, if I keep doing this, I'm going to get caught and I'm going to go to jail, so I'm going to stop. It's not really Bible repentance. You know, a person might change even before the church and not be really Bible repentance. Might have some strong family relationships in the church or, and I don't want to lose those, and so I'm going to change my behavior. Or I don't want to be seen as a failure and so I'm, I'm going to change. And so a person might even change their behavior before the church and it not really be Bible repentance. Bible repentance is a change in behavior prompted by a godly sorrow, which results in a change in our thinking, and we're bringing our lives into conformity with God's will. Now, the change might not be sudden and complete. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, here's a new Christian. And so they might not just change completely in every way that they should overnight. They, they grow and they develop. But eventually, eventually, there are changes that are continuing to take place. And we see big changes in a person's life. And so again, repentance is a change produced by godly sorrow and a desire to live in a way that pleases God. And you see examples of that in Ninevites and the prodigal son and, and the two sons. This is just a lesson in repentance. What must I do to be saved? Well, you need to hear the gospel because the gospel is God's power to save. You need to believe it. You need to put your confidence in it. Trust in the word of the cross, the message of the cross. That's, that's what's going to save you. And then we need to change our way of thinking we need to change our way of life. We need to go from living for self to living for Christ. And uh, truly repenting in every way. Growing, maturing in the faith, learning all necessary elements in our relationship to God. 
That, that's a lifelong endeavor, really. And so repentance is a lifelong exercise. So when you just repent once, and that, that's it. <laughs> it's a, a continuing exercise. It, it's really a lifelong exercise as we grow and learn and develop in our relationship with God. But repent we must. Those are the words of Jesus, repent or perish. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the love that you showed to us, the mercy that you have, the compassion toward us, and the grace that you bestowed upon us through your Son, Jesus. We were alienated from you because of our selfishness, because of our rebellious attitude. And so we transgress your will for us, we sin, and we alienate and separate ourselves from you. But through the gift of your Son, Oh, that sin might be forgiven and atoned for, and we might be restored to you once, once again. Father, we understand that in order, to, in order for that to happen, we must repent. We must be prompted by a godly sorrow. We must understand what our sin is and, and how, it, uh, how it disappoints and hurts you to see us sin. Well, we need to change our thinking as a result of that and no longer think in a self-centered and selfish way, but, but we need to develop uh, the, the kind of thinking that wants to please you in all we think and say and do. And help us, Father, to change our lives, to, to, to begin that change as we become Christians, but help us as we grow and develop as Christians to continually change our lives so that they might be more and more like the life of your Son. Father, help us to think on these things. Help us to dwell on them. Help us to understand what they mean and help them to have a profound impact on our lives. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.